It's good to be here, man. It's good to, to worship with you today. Uh, I'm excited to be able to talk to you uh, regarding the book of Mark. So if you have your Bible, that's where we're going to be. And if you know anything about the book of Mark, the book of Mark is a very fast-paced book. But once you get to chapter 11, it begins to slow down because the book is really dealing with one significant week in the life of Jesus. And this is what's called the Passion Week. This is the week that Christ would suffer for our sins. He would die on a cross and eventually be raised up. And what Jesus is going to do, you're going to see this there, where there's going to be a moment where Jesus is completely celebrated and everyone is anticipating this great Savior. And then all of a sudden, like a day later, Jesus is rebuking all the people in the temple. Now, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to confront a problem that is within all of us. It is a problem of religiosity. Now, what I want to encourage you, is what I encouraged the first service, and that um, when I'm talking about being a Pharisee or religiosity, there's a part of you that's going to be like, mm, Keisha needs to be here to hear this. <laughs> this is Keisha's problem, right? There's a tendency to think about someone else, amen? Don't think about nobody else except you, amen? But I learned something early on in my walk. I had been, uh, I played college football at uh, James Madison University and I, while I was there, balling, praise God, praise God for those two people <laughs> filled a room of hundreds. Yes! Thank you for the both of you. But I was there playing college football for JMU and while I was there, uh, I was not living for the Lord, I was bouncing in the club, I was playing football, I was doing all these things, and then God busted into my life, and so all of a sudden I become part of a campus ministry, and I'm part of a Bible study, and I'm in the Bible study, and I'm growing, then they asked me to lead the Bible study, now you got to understand, I come out of the clubs where, you know, we, we, we just talk real at the bar and all this and all that, so I really didn't know how to lead a Bible study, so I'm just leading the Bible study, the only way I know how to do it, and I'm like reading the book of Philippians and the teaching it, so I really don't know much, but I had a girlfriend, right? And in, in the world, I was wilding out. And so now I have this girlfriend, a Christian girlfriend. I was like, that's kind of an oxymoron. Like, how do you do that? Like, so what do we do? What don't we do? What do we do? Like, I just didn't know, right? So we're there, and everybody, then we get to the, you know, the, the, the prayer time, right? And people are sharing about the tests they got coming up, their grandma, grandmama's hip. They're talking about the weather, the sun, the moons, and the stars, all that. And I'm like, Yo, I'm really out here struggling, and um, I'm going to just say this. I'm going to say something. I'm going to say it. I'm say Me and my girlfriend need prayer for purity. <laughs> well, I didn't know I broke a code. People started scooting away from me like, oh, oh, you need, you need that prayer? You need prayer. Oh, okay, well, we'll pray for you. And I immediately thought to myself, oh, I guess there's some place I'm not. And part of the challenge we have as believers is that we all know we are a group of imperfect people, amen? We know that we struggle, and even the most mature person in this room is imperfect, and they struggle. Imperfect people struggle, and yet the religious are imposters. So we can say that imperfect People struggle, but imposters cover the struggle. Jesus would 
teach us about this. Now, understand that when I say that we are imperfect, I don't know you, but I know that you are inconsistent. When I teach on the doctrine of sin, I just basically say that we have things that we say we'll do, but we don't do. We have standards that we think should be kept, but we don't even keep. In fact, I can tell you right now something I know about you. You give advice to people that you don't keep. Huh? You a vegan? Huh? Oh, oh you eat meat on the weekends. Oh, you're a meat-eating vegan. Praise God. Tell me how that works out. All right, so Jesus had a term. Jesus had a term for this imposter, this person that's so dualistic, showing their, their outward religion but covering their inward corruption. And he calls him a hypocrite. Now, this is a word that is bled into our vernacular every day. In fact, some of you, you've stopped going to church because it was filled with what? Hypocrites. You can respond. Amen? Amen. This is, this is the call and response portion. When I do this, feel it. Jesus uses this term. Now, he has many terms he uses. He would call, you know, Pharisees, he would call them graves and blind guides and vipers and fools. But this word hypocrite was an actual term used. But he wasn't talking about a dualistic person. I mean, meaning that at the time the word was not referencing a dualistic person. A hypocrite was an actor. It was a person of theater. And at that time, an actor was essentially equivalent to what we call a mime. It was a person who would paint their face so that it would always have a particular look on it and that you really don't know who they are, but you always see them in a perpetual performance. And Jesus would look at the religious of their day, and he looked at the minds, and he goes, you know what? You guys are like them. Performing. You are more theatrical than you are spiritual. Kevin DeYoung would put it this way. The hypocrite is the Christian who uses the veneer of public virtue to cover the rot of private vice. He's the man living a double life, the woman fooling her friends because she has church clothes, the student who proudly answers the questions in Sunday school and just as proudly romps through immorality the rest of the week. This, in essence, has its benefits. Painted face religion, when you are painted your face with praise and you've painted your face with Bible verses and you've painted your face with attendance and you've painted your face with all kinds of faithfulness, people begin to think great of you. And all of a sudden, they really can't tell if you're a godly person, but they can tell you do godly things. And so in essence, what you've done is you are very cosmopolitan. You have spiritual makeup. And we really can't tell. Maybe it's Jesus. Maybe it's Maybelline. <laughs> but you paint your face. When you paint your face, it eases your conscience. It tells the crowd that you're somebody. It makes you feel more confident because a relationship with God is fluid and changing. Grace is so confusing that God still loves you and still cares for you, even though you know you're not the person you're supposed to be. It's easier 
to walk in religion and performance than to walk in grace. You can have a whole church filled with this. Jesus, in Mark chapter 7, said this, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you, hypocrites, as it is written, the people honor me with their lips, meaning that they are giving me robust, powerful praise, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, vanity. It's for a look. And so church, this is not for a particular group in the church. This is within us all. The want and the desire to perform, it is a yoke we must break. And we must ask God to break it daily. And so we'll see how Jesus calls us to break painted face religion. Amen? Mark chapter 11, you can go there. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Let me read that for you. When they approached Jerusalem the Beth, at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you as soon as you enter it. You'll find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street tied by a door. They untied it and some of those standing there said to them, why are you, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they answered them, just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. They brought the donkey to Jesus, threw the clothes on it, and, sat, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king, our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, you have to understand, the way it is written in Hebrew, they would call this like a chiastic structure, meaning that people were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And almost like a chorus, they would yell, Hosanna in the highest. So it was almost like a pep rally. It was this robust, almost entertaining environment that Jesus was walking into. And when they were saying Hosanna, they were saying, the Lord saves, you are the one that is going to save us. And when they said Hosanna in the highest, they were saying that you are from on high, you're from heaven, and you will be able to destroy the Roman Empire and take away the oppression that we've been feeling. Because they were not looking being, from being saved from their sins, they were looking from being saved from social oppression. And because they were looking for this freedom, they were not thinking about inner corruption. They weren't thinking about their brokenness. They were thinking about the pain that they had knowing that this was the city of David and they were Jews and they should be the ones leading. And so they said, finally here, Messiah has come. The lion will lay down with the lamb. All, all men will bow to this king. And that's what they wanted. They wanted a king, a temporal king. But if you look, you look in Jesus's on this donkey, the word there translated for donkey or colt is little horse. That's why it gets inter it's interchangeable. It's a little horse. Jesus intentionally found a little horse. Now, when you are about to walk in somewhere and you know people are about to celebrate you, you stunt, don't you, huh? Jesus could have put on his Jerusalem 11s and just walked in this place and just felt like, oh man, but he got a little horse. 
One reason we know is that he, it was prophesied. It says in Zechariah 9.9, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So one, it's been prophesied that he would do this. So God, before the foundation of the earth, wanted Jesus on a little horse. In essence, what we have then is a great king, little horse. Normally a coming king. A victorious king would walk in on a big war horse. But here is Jesus on this little horse. And what I believe it is showing is the dualistic nature, the nuance of Jesus. In Revelation, it will touch on this. Revelation chapter 5, it says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, look. So John starts to look, look. The lion from the tribe of Judah. So John there in his vision, he's looking for this lion. The root of David has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then in verse 6, so John says, I'm looking for a lion. And all of a sudden he says, then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne. Well, which is it, Jesus? Are you a lion or are you a lamb? Which is it? We know that the lion excels in strength. The lion is known for its kingliness. But the lamb is to be slaughtered. The lamb is being used. The lamb is meek and lowly. Jesus shows us his diversity in this. One author put it like this. There do we meet in Christ, infinite highness, yet infinite accessibility. Infinite justice, yet infinite grace. Infinite glory, yet infinite humility. Infinite majesty, yet infinite meekness. Absolute sovereignty, yet perfect submission. Infinite all-sufficient in himself, yet he places his entire trust and dependence on God. He's a lion, but he's a lamb. He's a rock, but he's a pearl. He's a mighty captain, but he's also a tender lover. He's a mighty tree, but he's also a fragile flower. Jesus is both. And there will be days when you walk in here feeling like you've prayed the prayers. You see God doing things. You see fruit bearing in your life. You see the world changing around you. And you will shout and hear like a roaring lion. But there will be days when you will limp in here. And you have been rattled by sin. And you will be broken and weary and you will be dealing with your own pride and you will be sick of your own sin and you will be like that lamb brought into slaughter dying daily. You will be both. And you will have the courage to meet God after your failures. And Jesus shows us that he is both. And there is a tendency in us to only want to live in perpetual strength. But there is also a tendency in us to want to live in perpetual weakness. Jesus shows us both. And yet there is an alternative. And that is to paint your face with religion. To always have a look. It goes on in Mark 11, 11 through 14. Jesus now goes into Jerusalem and into the temple. And after looking around at everything, so peep this scene. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And 
The next day went out from Bethany. He was hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, keyword. He went out to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, meaning he got close, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, just reading this, you're like, goodness gracious, Lord. Why you do that to that tree? What'd that tree do to you? Right? But understand this. This is real simple. At that time, Jesus was hungry. He sees leaves on a fig tree. He walks up close to it. And in that season, if there were leaves, there should have been nubs showing that figs were going to grow. He saw leaves but no fruit. And so because he saw leaves but no fruit, he did not curse a fig tree that was not dead. He was pronouncing the deadness of the tree already. He was exposing a fruitless tree. He was judging it, in essence saying, no one will ever eat from this tree. You will not see fruit from this tree. And it tells us, therefore, that just as Jesus got close to a leaf-bearing tree, he gets close to a religious-filled Christian. And he looks for fruit. He examines the soul. And we know that this is a New Testament principle. In James chapter 2, you already know this. Faith without works is what? Dead. That's what Jesus was saying. There's, there's no works. There's no fruit in this tree. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one in me bears much fruit. John 15, 8, my father is glorified that you produce much fruit. Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. And it is evidence that the Spirit of God is working in you. And so fruit is indicative of an interdependence on God. And Jesus is examining that while you are in worship, while you are with people, while you are serving and leading and in your marriage, and in your friendship, he is looking for fruit. Not that you just exist and show up. I started the church, my church downtown, from scratch. I grew up in Westchester, and so I really never traveled to Brooklyn for good reasons in the 90s. Amen and amen. <laughs> Whenever I saw a street sign that I had heard in a rap song, I was like, I'm out. I know that this is... Probably not a good place to be right now, alone. Do I know anybody? No? All right, I'm out. So, you know, I didn't really know Brooklyn, so I would, go, I would go to Brooklyn, and I felt the Lord leading me to start a church there, but I didn't know anybody. You know, so I'm starting from scratch, and man, when, you don't, when you're trying to start a church and you don't know people, it is this weird feeling. Like, I'd meet people in coffee shops. I swore a couple of people thought I was trying to pick them up, because, you know, you're just like, so you have a church? You know what I'm saying? It's just... Saying, are you into the Lord or, or not? You know what I'm saying? So it's hard. It's hard. It's hard starting a church. 
So here I am, I'm starting a church, and then all of a sudden, people start wanting to come, and man, there was this one dude, he was from Harlem, his name was Carvins, and he was this poet, and I'm like, oh man, I'm so excited, and he, I would eventually do his wedding, and all of a sudden, this dude tries out for this play, and then he's on it, it was called Hamilton, he had a little part, George Washington, I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing, this is amazing, and then, and then I met this one girl, her name was Mona, and she was from Brownsville, and, and she was like, yeah, I'd like to start coming, and it was all of a sudden, now she's one of our community leaders, I meet this other guy, his name was Rich, and Rich starts coming around, and he ends up becoming one of our pastors, and now he's a full-time counselor, and it was amazing, and I saw all these people grow at our church, and here's what I learned in the process. None of those people are degreed. None of those people had great church backgrounds. It's not that I don't look for a resume of faith. I just found that sometimes people use that almost like a card. And what I learned was to wait and not check out their resume, but to look for fruit. You see, many of you might be seasoned in the faith. You might have done great things. You went on a mission trip. You just saved all of Africa. Amen? (laughs) Just all of Africa is bowing because of you. Praise God. You, 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 you've got the degrees, you know the verses, you know all the songs. But who are you in conflict? I have found that the most spiritually seasoned people tend to be some of the worst people in conflict. Amen, James. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and amen yourself on that one, brother. Because they think that their past is a badge for their lack of fruit. And so the, so the people that knew the Bible the most were my hardest people to deal with. The people that came in most seasoned They didn't want to just pour out and love people. And what Jesus is looking for is not knowledge. He's not looking for you. When you get to heaven and you meet with the Lord and you roll out this scroll of resume and you show all these things you did, do you know in the Bible, think, 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 think deeply on this. In 1 Corinthians, he says you could give your body away to be burned. He says you can give all your money away. You could literally be a martyr and not have love. And what Jesus is looking for is love from people. He examines fruit. And so... It is in this examination that we see that Jesus rebukes this tree. In verse 15, they came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturns tables, and it was the table of the money changers. Now, just get in your mind. He's throwing people out. He's overturning these tables. And chairs of those selling doves. So just, again, Jesus is tearing the whole club up, the whole thing. Right? He is 
while it out, right? So just, I don't know how we skip past this. This is the same Jesus, right? And we, amen. So I feel the energy right here. You, you, me and you got a thing happening. You don't even know what I'm about to say, and you feel the spirit of the living God. It was the shirt. It was the shirt. You saw the shirt. He said, he got a word for me today. <laughs> Verse 16. Okay, so he would not, now listen, listen, listen. He would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. Meaning Jesus was slapping stuff out of people's hands. Am I, are you reading this with, are you reading this with me? Am I making this up? Amen. But then he says, he was teaching them. So Jesus was not just enraged. He was purposefully showing spirit-filled anger towards a group of religious people. Teaching them, he says, is it not written, my house will be a called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. In the temple, there would be this court. It had different sections for Jewish men and women, but there was this Gentile area that was the largest section. And in this section... It would look like Wall Street, where it was a lot of hustling and bustling. And people were literally trying to exchange money in order to get close to God. And Jesus, what he yells out, essentially is, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Everyone should feel welcome here. And you are creating a transactional nature to a relationship with me. You are making people feel like they're out. And you are creating this in crowd. And what I believe is that we can put our energy into all types of impressive spectacles in worship. But I believe that if Jesus were to walk into this place, I believe that Jesus would look around and he would see us praising him and he would see us with our Bibles open. He would see all the great things we've done for God. But then Jesus would be looking around and he would say, now where, where's the misfit? Where's the broken? Where's the marginalized? Where's the oppressed? Where's the person that thinks they're out? How can we make them feel in? Let me help you understand. I used to pastor a church in North Carolina. And this was a church where I dressed up in a suit every Sunday. It was a church where the mothers had big hats and white suits and they had candy in their purse. Amen? Right? <laughs> so that was the vibe, right? And then one day, a guy walked in, clothes all disheveled, kind of sat in the back, and the people with the nice clothes on were like, <laughs> right? Everybody moved. Everybody moved away. And man, I, that Sunday, I changed the sermon. That, this was, that, that was not good anger. That was, don't, don't mimic that. I was wilding out. But, but I was so enraged. I was like, see, this is the problem. This is the problem. I need to do a different church. I need a church where we dress down. You know what I'm saying? We got to wear shirts with tapes on them. Just all that. 
So I end up going to a church in Atlanta, right? So now I'm in Atlanta, I'm at this church, and it's real cool, and everybody's cool, and we're all cool, and you look cool, and you look cool. Everybody's cool, right? Everybody's cool. So now I'm in there, and I'm like, oh, okay, because I, you know what I'm saying, I'm used to suits, so now I'm like, oh, okay, I need to look cool, so, you know, cool now. So I'm in there, and one day somebody brought their mother to church, and she had the white hat with the gold joint. She had a lot of those white and red mints. And even the, the strawberry covered one. You know what I'm talking about. That's the anointing. The anointing is in the strawberry covered candy. Come on, man. You know, if you don't know. So she got those candies, right? Listen. Listen. And this is what happened. This is what happened. Do you know what all the cool people did? They were like, oh, oh, screw. Oh, 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 look at her. Look at her hat. I was like, oh. It's not the clothes. It's the heart. Because you can dress down but not be down to earth. Come as you are can be a look, but not an actual principle in a church. Is everyone welcome? All people groups. That's what the word nations really is. It's not, just, it's not necessarily talking about just a geography. It's talking about types of people. Are all welcome. And that's what Jesus was in. Did you see Jesus doing this throughout every chapter? No. What made Jesus enraged was when a church started to have an in and out culture. And he broke the yoke of inness so that there could be outness in a church. That's what Jesus does. But what the Pharisees want to do is they want to create a ladder. And that is within our bloodstream. We will use the Bible. We will use ethnicity. We will use money. We will use where we will do almost anything to prove I am better than you. That is in your bloodstream. That is not just religion. And when people walk in here, that's what they're looking for. They're like, are you different than the world? Because my family is like this. When I told my family that I was going to be an actor and I, I wasn't going to be a doctor, they just essentially disowned me. When I started hanging out with different crowds, my friends... They didn't like that I was being in diverse crowds, so they stopped hanging out with me. The world sections itself off like the temple. And Jesus breaks that yoke. It says in verse 20, Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. So now the next day they're walking and they're like, man, that fig tree is really dead. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, Jesus' response is of the utmost importance. He says, have faith in God. I wonder if you'd say that with me. Have faith in God. In God. Peter, Peter looks and says, man, 
look at the deadness of this tree. Man, he's so surprised. And Jesus says, don't focus on the tree. Focus on God. Look up at God. Think about what God is doing. The reason why I had to come back to the faith is because I left the church. I am a church kid. My mother, Christian education, my pops, a pastor. But religious people disappointed me. And for many of my friends, they left church too. Because for a lot of them, their family and their parents, they had a public faith, but they had private corruption in the home. And you just look up, and deacon so-and-so just has a baby. Like, where did he get a baby from? Is he married? Or, Amen. You know, you just kind of moved on. Right? And then your friends, your friends started making fun of church, and you were just like, nah, I, go to, I, go to, I don't go to church. You know what I'm saying? And you just kind of moved on. And church, for some people, is comedy. And for some of you, you might even be here, you say this is just filled with hypocrites. And you would be right. And you are one of them. And one of the greatest things you can do is learn from what God tells Peter. Don't look at the dead tree. Look up at God. Don't get distracted by the dead faith of people in front of you. Look at God. Some of you have had heroes in the faith have dead faith. Recently, we've seen several leaders, Christian leaders, who have been exposed for their dead faith. Dead faith does not diminish the goodness of God. Is God still good? And we have this tendency in us. You want an authentic church. That's why you do community groups. Your church has made a calculated decision. Instead of hearing a fire word from Jordan on Sunday and then a dynamic Bible study, the reason why they said we don't want Bible on Sunday and then Bible again on Wednesday, because they presume the words you heard on Sunday, you need to be in a community of faith to live it out. That obedience is a community project. And in, if you are going to have an obedience-based discipleship system, meaning that we're going to talk about how we're really growing, you cannot have an environment where you talk about growth and dishonesty in the mix. People have to, I'm not saying you got to expose your whole laundry list of brokenness. I'm saying when people talk about brokenness, you cannot live shocked because someone was honest. But for those who want to be honest... Don't be surprised when people start speaking into your life so that you can change. The problem is we fall one side or another. We want to be super honest, but we don't want to change. Or we don't want to be honest because we're not really changing. But in the middle there is grace and truth. Moses, Moses wanted all of God. And I believe that if you're here today, you want more of God in your life. 
And Moses said in Exodus 33, show me your glory, meaning I want all of God. I want to see more of you in my life. I want to see lives change in my midst. I want to see you use me. I want to see radical transformation of my city, my friends, my home, and me. I want all of God's glory to emanate through my life. And that's what God did. He showed himself to Moses. And then he would come down off the mountain. And when he came off the mountain, being with God, the Shekinah glory of God, the, the presence of God was so powerful, the people couldn't handle it. They were like, oh gosh, chill out. Oh, all the glory is just turned down the glory, please. So we'd have to put a veil on his face. He'd have to put some kind of mask on so, because the people couldn't handle it. But in an environment of believers, we should all be looking to God like Moses. And it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, we all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. And what God is calling you to do as you form your groups is for you and you and you to be looking up to God daily in private worship. And then you come to church and you get a little more worship. And then you go to your group and you have more worship together and you are exhorting one another and encouraging one another. And you create an environment of authenticity. That's what God is continually calling Renaissance to do to be a place of authenticity and of Christ-centeredness. And so, don't paint your face for your reputation before men. Unveil your face before God, and the glory of God will emanate from you. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy in our lives. And we ask, God, that we would be changing from glory to glory. Amen.